the regulation of technology open source versus proprietary are these things going to have to look different are accessibility rules or privacy rules going to look different when the code is closed to do what are is there a difference even i think where it's going to matter is who gets sued Welcome to The Open Source Economist, a podcast about the new economy of free software powering our lives. Brought to you by Christy Chirinos, product manager and entrepreneur. In business economics, we often think about the kinds of risks that a business takes on when they exist. These types of risks can affect revenue, they can affect the cost of what we're doing, they can even affect how dangerous it is to run the business for the executives, the owners, the board. And frequently at the top of that list is the potential for regulation. Now, contrary to what you might think when you look at social media and American politics, less regulation is not actually a mainstream economic view. A common school of thought in economics believes that the role of regulation is to rein in potential externalities. Externalities is a fancy word that you've actually already heard on this podcast that means things that happen by the way of other things happening. A lot of the time, those things can be less than stellar. And that's why we leverage a different system to make sure they're not happening or they're happening at a more manageable rate. As I worked in this industry with the economist hat on my head, I started to wonder at what point we're going to get a ton of regulation on the internet and on the open source infrastructures that keep a lot of our information age world going. Thinking about it historically, uh, there was a while in which we didn't necessarily regulate the physical spaces in which business happens. And as I worked in the industry more and more, I started to get curious about when that hammer is going to come down. From what I've seen, it's not an if. We're already seeing the consequences of the lack of that regulation. Especially due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw what the consequences are when everyone has to be online and some people can't be. We've seen the massive consequences of not having standardized security and then watching hacks skyrocket the price of gas, leave open doors to many government services. So regulation is quickly looking like an inevitability. Even outside of these large dramatic events, the level of access that I saw we had in my company was kind of scary. As a business owner, I didn't want that level of responsibility. I wanted help. So I hired someone who provides that help. My name is Ryan Kinney. I am a tech and privacy attorney that uh, has been working in this field with 
businesses of all sizes from freelance to enterprise. Yep. And I was one of those clients. Ryan's really good. I work primarily with open uh, source companies and companies that are involved, uh, at least in some uh, form or fashion, with WordPress. And having come from an intellectual property background, uh, trademark, uh, and intellectual property licensing, it dovetails very well into the open source uh, licensing aspect. It's all different facets of the same legal premise, which is, you know, what intellectual property rights do you have? And what are you giving, transferring, allowing uh, others to use? There, there aren't enough attorneys out there that are, are versed in this area yet. And I wanted to change that. If my clients are telling me, um, we can't find anybody uh, and or we hired an attorney to assist us with negotiating a deal and they came in and screwed it up because they don't understand what open source is. I said, what can I do to fix it? Cool. I've spent, you know, two or three years in WordPress, WordCamps, learning, you know, all about the science and technology. And then I take that to the uh, American Bar Association leadership. And the first thing I did was say, Listen, I love what we're doing here. Great job, everyone. Uh, but I want to bring in technologists to speak with us and not just have a bunch of attorneys sitting around and talking about what we know about law because it doesn't exist in a vacuum, which is why the first talk that uh, I put together in the leadership uh, capacity was to have Chris Tetzel CEO of Locker and uh, Seller Door Media come and speak with us because he's one of two uh, non-attorneys on the Department of Homeland Security's Ethics and Privacy Committee. This man doesn't only, you know, understand uh, te the technology as a technologist, but the privacy and data requirements, and he's fusing them together in real time every day. And the truth is, we all are. Every single business owner in open source is trying to fuse together technology and their legal responsibilities, you know, together every day. And the only way we learn and grow is by talking to each other. If attorneys sit in a silo and we just sit around talking about, well, we know how to write contracts, but we don't, we're not familiar with how uh, technology actually functions, uh, how it's, you know, growing and, and expanding, then, you know, we're writing outdated contracts the way that laws are still outdated. Right there lives your potential for external shocks. It always begins by noticing the problem and realizing that we haven't really put the right solutions in place. And so when we focus on not only practice, but theory, we start by thinking, well, what's the problems and what's the hypothesis? You're in a leadership position, not only practicing, but also helping define the problems. And that's really important. So from what you're doing, what are the hot button issues that people are discussing right now? I think the largest one um, <laughs> near and dear to my heart uh, as well, and I'm not just saying this because uh, I care so much about it, but it's really privacy. The GDPR um, has, you know, caused a ripple effect 
across the globe, Ever, not just, you know, the U.S. Uh, instituting the CCPA, and now I believe it's the CPRA, which is already slated to follow uh, the CCPA um, as far as the California uh, Consumer Privacy Act, but Brazil, Canada, Australia, now New Zealand. I mean, just every single country is uh, instituting their own version of what this is. It's a global economy. I mean, if you're on, if you're selling goods or services on the internet and you don't specifically exclude a jurisdiction, then you avail yourself to being sued in that jurisdiction. You're selling to those citizens, you're bound by those laws. And this is creating an overwhelming nightmare for everyone. That's on the basic economic level. Then you throw in a global pandemic for good measure and the requirement for contact tracing and you know this the the share of data uh, and health related information which is considered sensitive data in uh, the European economic area oh, oh also brexit so now they're separate but you know not and then I mean so yeah <laughs> so privacy is the short answer to that but then we go the extra layer of complexity for what attorneys uh, are scrambling with it uh, within technology because Schrems too, uh, the court case uh, through the European uh, Court of Justice invalidated the EU Swiss uh, privacy shield. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. As if the pandemic and the, and the privacy re regulations weren't enough, uh, Schrems too, uh judgment was issued which previously companies in the US could elect to voluntarily certify with something called uh the EU or Swiss US privacy shield and it was a reliance on this shield for valid transfers of data in and out of the EU so when the uh, EU uh, Court of Justice said, no, the US doesn't have adequate protections of privacy as a government and a country, you can't rely on this in order to tra uh, transfer data. Every organization that transfer, and again, think about where your co hosting companies are. Think about your distribution chains. Think about you know, where all of this information is gathered and, and transmitted across, you know, international borders. Now they said, okay, um, so we'll rely on standard contractual clauses. Strand standard contractual clauses for, for privacy is promulgated by the EU. They have these actual, like what you can say and how you can say it. And that is what you would rely on to validly transfer private data uh, to the U.S. Okay, April 27th, the Portuguese Data Protection Authority uh, suspended the uh, international transfer of data to Cloudflare because e e the, the standard contractual clauses were found to be inadequate. So in which case, in what world, we're, we're now talking about the U.S.'s inability to keep pace with privacy legislation, negatively impacting businesses, 
on a fundamental level, if they are uh, governments, entire governments in the EU are saying, hey, you can't transfer any data to the US, what does that do to all of our cloud-based businesses? And they're systematically finding ways to limit the transfer of data in and out of the US based on our inadequate privacy laws right now. So what are technology ta uh, attorneys talking about most right now? Privacy. It's not to say that accessibility isn't as equally important. It's, I mean, this is literally shutting down uh, people's abil ability to even conduct business right now. But so interesting question, right? I think that in some foregone past that no longer exists, that would have been seen as a form of business related action, right? So we would think of something maybe that's kind of like a tariff, right? Like we're like, oh no, they're imposing a tariff, but that's not really what's going on. It's a human rights thing, right? It's a fundamental difference of opinion in what should be happening or is it a business thing? So, I mean, this is personal opinion because I mean, again, attorney, you see both sides of everything. On one level, uh, this is a, a fundamental difference of philosophy and opinion where the US kind of created itself in somewhat of a vacuum and our fundamental drivers are, you know, capitalism, freedom of speech, and, you know, that freedom, we, you know, that is our impetus. And, you know, a conglomeration, like 27 different member states that with different, you know, countries, people, languages, and cultures that have all come together and all believe, all believe that privacy is a fundamental human right. And they've seen persecution genocide based up for every form of basis where where it's you know um religion politics you know so they are keenly aware of and committed to privacy as a fundamental human right seeing what it in the wrong hands can be done with it and i mean you look back to world war ii and how computers uh what uses they were used to profile track uh, you know, people and and what threat that posed to their their very lives. So so that's the sure. There's there's this legitimate uh, disagreement, but at the same time, oh my goodness, is this a great fundraiser? I mean, we're we're talking the the general uh, GDPR allows not just the EU as a whole, but individual member states. I mean, when you get hit with a fine of four percent of your, you know, pre or or twenty million euros, who's where's that money going? This is effectively taking money out of Facebook, Google. Where where are those companies headquartered? Where where's the majority of their wealth uh, derived from and go back to? And now where is that money being moved to? We're at a competitive disadvantage as business owners right now, not having better privacy laws, or even a unified privacy law within the United States and to allow us to do business globally. And it's not just subjecting small business owners to this kind of liability and a competitive disadvantage because they don't have the knowledge resources, uh, you know, access to attorneys to, to comply with it, even if they, they wanted to in, in a lot of cases. But then you have this redistribution of wealth and these, you know, fines and 
okay, make the argument that, well, if big tech stopped breaking the law, then they wouldn't have to pay these fines. Cool, except for it's called the general data protection uh, regulation because it's general. And much like accessibility in the US with the ADA and this law that doesn't provide bright line guidelines or rules, neither does the GDPR. You know, it's protect privacy and you have these obligations, but it doesn't tell you exactly what you have to do. And so many times, you know, differing jurisdictions come up with different opinions as to what's required. They enforce it differently. The the EU and the GDPR and the DAPAs, they work collaboratively. There's, you know, a, a lot going on, but I mean, this is a constantly evolving requirement. I want to ask you about that accessibility law, but I want to come back to the constantly evolving requirement because it sounds like no matter what the issue is, this is a space where we still haven't figured out what the final evolution is. So I want to come back to that, but what's the ADA and the accessibility law in the United States? I thought we didn't have any. Yes. So the American Disabilities uh, Act is what has been used uh, to require websites to be accessible to people with disabilities. The proliferation of accessibility-based lawsuits has skyrocketed over the past three years, with the large majority of them coming uh, out of and or you know, being instituted in New York and California, Florida third. Um, there were over 11,000 accessibility uh, cases in 2020 and 2019, and they were, they're actually expecting more in 2021. 20, uh, and the reason that these are so popular is because 99% of them settle. 99% of all accessibility cases settle because businesses and governments don't have the uh, financial resources to fight this, they're largely going to lose because the Department of Justice uh, has issued a letter saying that websites can be considered places of public accommodation. Again, like we're, uh, everything I just said uh, or previously said about privacy and the GDPR can be applied almost overlaid on top of each other for accessibility in the US, where you've got different states and different jurisdictions holding different differing opinions as to whether right now, whether, uh, whether or not accessibility is even applicable to websites or not. Gill versus Winn-Dixie, after many years of protracted litigation, uh, the 11th Circuit just held that um, it's not necess- websites are not necessarily a place of public accommodation and don't have to be compliant. <laughs> so, so, but it leaves U.S. businesses in a position where there are no clear lines or rules as to what accessibility is, means these laws have not been updated to keep up with the interweb <laughs> or technology. It's being used and abused. There, there have been different uh, people who have filed over, you know, 300 cases in in the state of Florida against local municipalities. And you can say, um, is is advocating for 
better accessibility, better for everyone? Yes. You know, having screen readers, having Audible, yes. And it's one person with one specific attorney that filed 300 cases and forced cities and municipalities who are already known for not having fantastic web development or resources to pay $8,000 here, $15,000 there. I mean, they made hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. I don't believe that that person had the money to file the $400 filing fee for 400 cases on his own. I think the attorney is illegally fee sharing. And I have a feeling that the attorney involved is going to be disbarred. Guess what? Disbarred. If we as a country uh, or, or even just as human beings, let's just make it broader than that. If we're saying that we really care about something, that something is a fundamental human right, whether it's accessibility, whether it's privacy, shouldn't we have the ability to say what that minimum standard is? I mean, WCAG has the ability to, to write accessibility standards. And that's, you know, a lot of times what courts look at for whether they've been adhered to. Can we just agree whether we have to conform with them or not? Yes or no? Structurally, what's in the way of that? You just, you just outlined a solution. Can we have WCAG just say, boom? Sure. I mean, what's, what would be required for that is for uh, Congress to understand that it's important, prioritize, and agree. And we've all been around for the past, you know, couple of years and watched how things have transpired. Privacy and uh, accessibility haven't been on the forefront of their to-do list. Is there not even an answer in the settlements and verdicts and things presented in these 300 cases? There's just nothing? So there's best practices. For, for accessibility specifically, if you have a website and especially if you have a website and a brick and mortar store, making your uh, website uh, accessible and to a minimum standard of uh, the WCAG uh, technological accessibility stated standards. For developers and agencies, making sure that your contracts state whether and to what extent you are including these accessibility features to a specific standard or not. So you can't be held contributorily or vicariously liable for failing to do so. If accessibility is a skill set, particularly that you don't have and aren't going to include, make sure to say that this is a separate service. Have something in there that's like you may be responsible uh, for uh, maintaining certain accessibility uh, standards uh, not included in, in these services. Limit your liability in your contracts. Make sure you're being clear. Try to keep stay up to the, the latest and greatest standards with privacy. We know it's privacy by design. You know, knowing the ins and outs of the technology as far as opt-in, opt-out. Do you have the click button? Is it click wrap, browse wrap? You know, all of that. So they're not law. Right. Best practices aren't law. There's no checklist to go down. You can find something else. And we, if we don't have a list, we can say, well, yeah, that should have been on the best practice list. And constantly evolving target. As a manager, I get it, right? I would say, okay, well, awesome. That sucks, you know? And that's exactly what I was talking about. It's scary. Now, uncertainty is scary for everybody. We talked about that in the labor market episode and generally speaking in our conversations and existence. But when it comes to running a business, we want to minimize uncertainty. And 
it can get difficult. But maybe I just have to get used to it. Ryan taught me about the ways that we're addressing accessibility through regulation or not. I also wanted to know about privacy. You go to NIST.gov and there's a privacy framework that was published in January of last year where they're starting to come up with these minimum standards uh, and, and frameworks, again, as reactionary to the GDPR. But when you look at the framework, this is, a, this is an overview of the privacy framework. The core provides an increasingly granular set of activities and outcomes uh, that enable an organizational dialogue about managing privacy risk. Ooh, can you wait for the the next hundred pages of what this is going to be? But at least they're having that conversation. I mean, the reason that that the general data protection uh, GDPR is so general is because it's implemented ac- across twenty seven or twenty eight member states plus you know Liechtenstein, Norway, and Switzerland, and the UK now now with Brexit. So. They the generality allows for flexibility within different countries. The next thing I wanted to go over is what this all looks like in practice. We have big ideas going around and right now, big ideas surrounding regulation is the stage in which we are and must be. But you met Dr. Orozco in the first episode and one of the things that I learned in his class was about a legal framework that had to do with how businesses use the law to generate competitive advantage. And at the very, very bottom of the least strategic approach is to just comply. The better situation is to observe how things are changing and be at the forefront. Ryan is a business-focused attorney And she has seen how these things are happening. So what's the actual application? Talking about the theoretical and the challenges is one thing, right? Say, okay, these are the challenges and this is why it's, you know, difficult for for companies of all sizes to comply with this. Cool. Do they necessarily need to? A lot of companies have said, well, yeah, the GDPR might be a thing, but I don't need to do anything. You know, they're not really going to come after me. I'm too small. And we're finding, you know, that they start with the big boys and then they move their way their their, their, their way down. And um, the Dutch uh, DPA actually issued a 545,000 euro uh, fine to a North American uh, company for failing to appoint a, a, a representative. The GDPR requires you know, if you're collecting data on our citizens, then you need to have a representative in our jurisdiction. They didn't do it. They were fined 545,000 euros. And I actually on Kenny Firm have a resource for, you know, uh, compiled by the uh, privacy uh, professionals organization that is, you know, required DPOs by country because it's not just the EU. Uh, It's, smaller countries as well uh, all over the world that are requiring a representative and a data, uh, an appointment in that jurisdiction, which are two separate requirements, but it can be the same person and uh, a privacy officer that's familiar with the laws of that territory. So if you're in Australia, you know, privacy officer, blah, 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 blah. 
Now, the thing about privacy is it's definitely not limited to open source software. While we're focusing on open source software here, all kinds of technology is going to have to work together to make sure that we are establishing, discussing, and then acting on how things could look better. The regulation of technology, open source versus proprietary, are these things going to have to look different? I think where it's going to matter is who gets sued. I mean, Android is open source and and it has elements of proprietary and it is still in, you know, held accountable for laws across jurisdiction, regardless of, you know, what elements are pro- I think where I think where <laughs> where I am particularly interested um, is with automatic and with um, with WordPress, because it is 40% of the internet. When when privacy or cybersecurity or these things are or are not included in the project by the contributors, do they necessarily even conform to basic laws like UCC, uh, warrantability, merchantability, or not? And okay, so so then then you look at it and you're like, well, whose responsibility was it to do this? Who are the contributors that have the most access? And where do they come from? Who are they employed by? Where does their money come from? I always thought governance for the WordPress project was a good idea from a standpoint standpoint of actually limiting potential liability for automatic, but I know that they have amazing attorneys in-house and you know they've done their their cost uh, risk analysis. So I think it's we'll see. One of the things that uh, people often talk about as being one of the threats uh, or vulnerabilities of open source is uh, security and vulnerabilities themselves. And we've seen this rise in spam, phishing, and ransomware. There hasn't been an impetus of change for, for change. You can have, you know, hundreds of people saying, you know, we need this, we we need to know how decisions are made, like we need some kind of like oversight, not just one person. On the flip side, when something happens, and there is only one person making the decisions, I think the lawsuit, or people that are going after the uh, project are, you know, going to make that argument. Ultimately, it's owned by this corporate entity, it's this person that's the head of uh, both uh, this and that, and this is why you know they should be the ones held ac- accountable for my loss, injury, and liability. And we'll see what happens. Even the concept of open source licensing is one of those fun. Well, it hasn't really been tested in court yet. The key takeaway from all of these questions and learning about all of these trends that, uh, for the most part, I didn't know were happening. It's all a work in progress. It's amazing to have you. Uh, can you tell the people where to find you? Uh, yes. Uh, Kinney Firm, K-I-N-N-E-Y firm.com uh, and at Kinney Firm on uh, Twitter. Thank you for listening. Learn how to support the Open Source Economist at opensourceeconomist.com. Even a monthly $5 contribution helps and gets you access to full, unedited interviews with our guests. This podcast was edited by Allie Nimmons. Thank you to Alice Young for creating our designs, 
and to Chris Lemma for supporting our publishing costs. And of course, thank you to our individual contributors for helping us create this podcast. Have questions or feedback? Send them to email at christychirinos.com.